So, Lord, we thank you for, Lord, for your grace and for the fact and the reality that we get to revel in, that we are we're standing here. If we are in Christ, we are, we're alive in Christ. The old man is dead. And so we don't have to, to struggle. We don't have to strive. We can simply rest in your accomplished work on the cross. And we can adore you. And Lord, that we can know you. So Lord, I just pray that as we open your word this evening, uh, that we might come to know you even closer, and that um, your word might um, plant plant seeds that might bear fruit, and help us to walk in joyful obedience to your word. We just pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good evening. Well, tonight we are going to be back in the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to hopefully, God willing, finish out the first chapter this evening. And let me just tell you, if you are singing a Lauren Daigle song and you want to sound really good, sit in front of Kelly Mingy. I sound so much better when I sit in front of her. I'm amazing. Like I was hitting the high notes and everything. Boy, just hit mute on me a little bit. So anyway, as we make our way to Ecclesiastes in the first chapter, just a little bit of an overview of where we were uh, last week, in case you didn't join us, or if you did and forgot. Uh, First of all, to start off with, the author of this book, again, is Solomon. And Solomon, this book was written towards the end of his career, so at the beginning of his uh, rain. He wrote the Song of Solomon, and somewhere in the middle portions where he was kind of at his high water mark as the king of Israel, uh, he wrote the book of Proverbs. And then this book is written at the end of his career after he's sort of in the been there, done that kind of uh, stage of his life. And that's really the, the frame of mind or the mindset that Solomon was in when he penned the book of Ecclesiastes. And I uh, read a commentator this past week that compared the book of Ecclesiastes and said it was a lot like the movie Groundhog Day, which is really a cinematic classic if you haven't seen it before. But uh, in the ways that it was similar to Groundhog Day, as you see with the life of Phil Connor, the TV weatherman who was stuck in Puxatawney, Pennsylvania, who day after day had to repeat Groundhog Day, which he deplored. And every morning he woke up to the same Sonny and Cher, I Got You Babe, playing on the radio. And what he did as he woke up day after day in this same spot, because he was so miserable, he decided to explore everything under the sun, right? And Phil Connor, uh, he went uh, to the ends of pleasure. He went to the cafeteria or to the diner, and he ate every donut in sight, drank the coffee right out of the pot had three or four cigarettes lit at the, at the same time. I mean, he was just living it up, and he found absolutely no meaning in this. So what did he do? He went the route of wisdom. He even studied classical piano and became this wonderful piano player by the end of the movie. And yet in it, he found no pleasure, nothing. It was all vanity. Right, and so at some point in time, when you've done all these things and you've explored everything you can explore, you find yourself behind the wheel of a Ford F-150 with a groundhog that you've stolen somewhere on the steering wheel, right? Like it, you're, you're looking for something. You're yelling at the groundhog, telling him not to drive angry, right? So 
We see these, these comparisons here between Solomon and, and poor Phil Connor, the weatherman, but really what it was, and, and what I want to bring your attention to, is, is what Solomon points out is he looked at everything under heaven to try to find happiness, but he did not look in heaven for happiness. So that's what we're going to dig into a little bit tonight in the, as we finish out this first chapter of Ecclesiastes. All right, let's begin in our text, and we pick up in uh, chapter 1, verse 12. And I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven, this burdensome task God has given to the sons of men, by which they may be exercised. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed, all is vanity and grasping for the wind. Verse 15, What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. I communed with my heart, saying, Look, I have attained greatness, and have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge, and I set my heart to no wisdom and to no madness and folly. And I perceived that this is all grasping for the wind. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Well, that's a real pick-me-up here for a Wednesday night. Welcome out on Wednesday nights. So if you increase knowledge, you'll increase sorrow. Let's go home. All right, but instead, let's dig through these verses just a little bit. Now that we've read the passage, let's go back to verse 12. As we see here, Solomon, uh, again, proclaiming that who is the author of this book? I, the preacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. Now, this is actually one of the places that the folks that uh, say that Solomon might not have been the writer go to, uh, to to show this. But what you'll actually find is, in the Hebrew, the word was, in this case, can also be translated came to pass or came to be. So if you reread that verse, you'd, you'd read it, I, the preacher, came to be king over Israel in Jerusalem. So it actually proves that Solomon is, in fact, the writer. He came to be, after his father David handed over the crown to him, the king of Jerusalem. And then in verse 13, we see, And I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven, this burdensome task God has given to the sons of men, which, may, which they may be exercised. So again, not to, not to delve too much into Hebrew, but some of these words and phrases are important for us as we understand the text, that this phrase, to be exercised, could also be translated to be busied with or to be occupied with. So from Solomon's uh, standpoint, what he's saying here is that the, this idea of obtaining wisdom is given to us by God to keep us busy, really something for us to do. And, and understand that, that pursuing knowledge and wisdom is not a bad thing in and of itself. From Solomon's standpoint, it became a bad thing because he made it a part of his identity. He made it his God, basically, to go after these things. But for us, it is something for us to, to venture out after, to, to try to attain, to try to gain wisdom, to learn about the world around us with the hopes that in doing so, as we learn about things of the world, that it will actually point us back to God and back to his goodness. So the more things I learn about nature and I learn about the world, and I learn about math or I learn about my own DNA, these 23 chromosomes that, 
that make up the DNA structure and these 22 amino acids that each one of them have their own special little blueprint that they can reproduce. I mean, it's amazing, and I don't understand it, and I'm not smart enough to probably even talk about it right now, but what it does is it all points back to, wow, God is great. Wow, he's marvelous. Like, I can't even fathom all of these things. So this is really the point of the exercise. To be exercised, it's all to point us back to look uh, at what is in heaven instead of what is just under heaven. All right, so then moving on in verse 14. And I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. Now, the, again, this, this phrase, grasping for the wind, Solomon knows very much by personal experience about this. So he says, I've seen all these things. What he really is saying is, I've tried all these things. Everything under the sun, I have tried it, and it's all just simply grasping for the wind. You cannot get a hold of it. You can't grab a hold of any of these things. And then in verse 15, is interesting. He says, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be made numbered. Now, now, Solomon, when he says the word crooked, you could also translate it perverted. So what he's saying is all these things that are crooked or perverted cannot be made straight. And understand, like with perversion, we usually think of it in the sexual sense, but it really means that, that you could take anything that was initially intended for good and you twist it just a little bit and it becomes perverted. And where Solomon's going with uh, in this in this verse is he's saying no one can take these things that sin has now perverted in the world and actually straighten them all back out. No, no person can do this. And in this statement, he's correct. But where he's incorrect is Solomon didn't read or even have the book of Isaiah. So if you would flip with me uh, to the right just a little bit to Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 16. And these are promises given to us by the Lord. And in Isaiah 42, 16, this is what he says. And I, the Lord, Jehovah, will bring the blind by a way they did not know. And I will lead them in paths they have not known. And I will make darkness light before them and crooked places straight. These things I will do for them and not forsake them. So, what Isaiah is pinning down here is that the Lord is the one that can take these crooked things, that can take this perversion and can straighten it back out. And if you want a New Testament example, if we flip a little bit farther to the right, we can look in Luke chapter 3, uh, picking up halfway through verse 4. And what this is is actually a, a, a vision or a, a synopsis of the ministry of John the Baptist and what his, his role was in the coming of the Messiah but it's interesting to read. We pick up in halfway through the fourth verse in chapter 3 of Luke. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth, and all flesh shall see salvation in God. And if you want a Greek or Hebrew translation of the word all there, it's all. So all things will be made straight. 
through salvation that can only be brought forth by God. So where Solomon's right in one sense that these crooked things can't be made straight, where he's wrong is he doesn't understand the salvation that could only be brought by God. And that's the thing that at the end of everything, when it's all wrapped up, God is going to set everything back straight again. So everything that man has perverted, he is going to bring back into the proper alignment where it should have been, where he intended for it to be in the first place. So an interesting verse there. Let's look uh, next at verses 16 and 17. And I commune with my heart, saying, Look, I have attained greatness and have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. And if we stop there, again, this is another spot where people will pick on who's the author of this book because they'll say, he, he, he mentions here that who all were before me in Jerusalem, well, there was really only one before him in Jerusalem. His father David was the king in Jerusalem before him. But forgetting the fact that Jerusalem was a city long before the Israelites held on to it. In fact, if you go all the way back into Genesis chapter 14, you'll see an interesting meeting between Abraham and a guy named Melchizedek, who is known as the king of Salem, which is also Jerusalem. So there were many kings in this Jebusite-controlled city long before Solomon or even David. And what he's saying here is, I've attained more wisdom than all those people. A pretty lofty claim. But as we get to the end of it, he says, And I set my heart to no wisdom and to no madness, and I perceive again that it's all just grasping for wind. There's no end to any of these things. And lastly, he summarizes this whole section of Scripture once again, and he says, For in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And uh, what my, one of my old bosses said to me at Curry Construction, he said, before you can know anything at all about running this business or being in this business, you need to work here at least 10 years before you realize you don't know squat. And he was a pretty crude guy, so he didn't actually say squat, but I cleaned that up a little bit for you. He, he just wanted to make it clear, listen, man, you, until you've been here doing this a long time, you have to gain so much knowledge. You came in here as a young guy out of college. You thought you knew something. It took a decade before you realized you didn't know anything. And at that point in time, you can begin to learn things. But in, in our life, what we find is the more we learn, the more we realize we didn't know that much. And then we learn a little more, and we realize, boy, I really didn't know nearly as much as I thought I knew. And it's an interesting quote here that I wanted to put on the screen while we're in this middle of you know, being really uplifting. Um, if your origin is insignificant and your destiny is insignificant, then do you have the guts to admit that your life is insignificant? You think about that. Like, if we're going to be so bold to say that where I came from, what I was born into didn't matter, and then go to the other side and say, where I'm going to go, I'm just going to be buried, that's going to be it, and it doesn't matter. Then do you realize that everything in the middle, what you basically said is it doesn't matter either? You've really boiled your whole life down to complete insignificance. But then if we flip that around and we say, if your origin is significant, if where I started from has meaning, that, that God knew me even before I was born, and that my destiny is significant because by His grace and His power He has saved me, He has made that piece significant, then that means everything in the middle that we're doing right now is significant. 
Every interaction you have is significant. Every relationship you have is significant. All these things that we're really going to take with us when it's all said and done, all these things become significant to us. So that's going to lead us into really looking at wisdom, where, we, where I entitled this the vanity or the vapor or the hevel of wisdom, is Solomon is preaching to us and talking to us about one particular kind of wisdom. He's talking to us about earthly wisdom, where there is another kind of wisdom that's out there, and that's heavenly wisdom. So let's look at both of these things this evening, starting with earthly wisdom. And uh, we're going to turn all the way back to James chapter 3 to look at the definition of both earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. And as you make your way back there to James chapter 3, you probably recall from our studies uh, in Proverbs a few months back that the New Testament wisdom books, as Mike shared with us, are the book of James and also the Sermon on the Mount, which you can find in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. That's a, a, a really good resource in the New Testament for us to pull out these concepts of wisdom. But picking up in verse 13, the third chapter of James, and we'll go through 16 for this portion, he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where there is envy and self-seeking, or where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. So here we have a definition of earthly wisdom. It is envious and self-seeking. So let's look for the, for the sake of our time at some examples of what earthly wisdom looks like. So going all the way back then, now that I made you go all the way to the right in your Bible, all the way back to the left in your Bible, you're getting your exercise. This is better than yoga class. All the way to the left into Genesis, we're going to look at the construction of the Tower of Babel. And as you make your way to Genesis chapter 11, we're going to, we're going to look at a little bit of the life of a guy named Nimrod. But in chapter 9, uh, what is interesting here to start with is Noah in, in Genesis chapter 9 is getting off of the ark. And as he's getting off of the ark, God really gives him two commands. He says, be fruitful and multiply, which is one that all of us know pretty much off, the, off our tongues. But then the next section is he says, and fill the earth, right? Two things, be fruitful and multiply and go fill the earth. So then as we make our way to chapter 11 to the Tower of Babel, we see that a guy named Nimrod, the great-grandson of Noah, had a little bit different plan. Uh, he and the group that he was traveling with, they were probably out traveling with a whole group of kids. You know, they're doing the be fruitful and multiply part. And if you've ever traveled with kids, it's a lot of work. It gets really hard. And so I'm guessing they're probably like, listen, we got the minivan loaded down. If I have to travel with these kids anymore, I'm going to shove an ice pick through my retina. Like, I've had about enough of traveling with these children. Look at that beautiful plain of Shinar over there. Let's just park the minivan, and we'll set up shop right here. Let's build ourselves a big old city and a tower, and then we don't have to be traveling all over the earth. We did the first part God commanded. Surely he's not going to make us do the second part. So they begin to build this great tower. And I've heard it explained 
uh, quite a bit that this Tower of Babel, the part of the problem God had with it is that they were trying to build it up to heaven as a way to cheat God and make their way up to heaven through their own means. But I would propose to you that they were actually trying to do something much more practical than that. That if you're going to build a tower and you're going to build it really tall, we look at verse 3 of chapter 11. They said, come let us make bricks and bake them together uh, thoroughly. Uh, They made brick for stone and had asphalt for mortar. If you know anything at all about construction, you'd know that you don't use asphalt for mortar. You use cement for mortar, right? So not only were they building a great big tall tower, they were also using asphalt for mortar instead. So really what they were trying to do is get a tower built high enough that it would be above any kind of flooding that may take place. And they were using asphalt for mortar to try to waterproof that sucker. Because they learned from great-grandpa, hey, if you're going to build yourself an ark, you need to coat it with asphalt so it doesn't leak. We're going to do the same thing for our building that we're building right now. So let's get this thing above flood stage, and let's coat that puppy with asphalt. And then if God gets really ticked off at us again, we are going to be safe and sound inside. You see, there are a couple problems with what they were doing here. First of all, they had disobeyed the commandment that God gave them right off the boat. Go out and disperse. Get out there. And secondly, the issue they had is they didn't believe or trust God and His promise. You see, there was no need for them to coat that building with tar and asphalt at all because God had already given His promise that I will not flood the earth again. So everything is breaking down for them relationally with God because He wasn't going to destroy the earth with water again. In fact, He's going to destroy the earth with fire. And boy, i got to tell you, that's the last place you want to be in case of a fire is a building that's covered in asphalt. Not a great plan. But this is the wisdom that's coming from the world. It makes sense, right? You've seen a gigantic world flood. Build that puppy tall. You're tired of traveling around. Set up shop here. you got the Euphrates River, man. This is beautiful. Uh, Cover that thing with asphalt so it doesn't leak. It all makes sense. But what was really happening in verse 4 is they said, and let us make a name for ourselves. There was envy, and they were seeking to make a name for themselves. That's, that's Nimrod's whole deal. He wanted to be known. He was the biggest Nimrod we've ever known, right? His name, is, it did go down in infamy, I guess. But where there is self-seeking and envy, what did we just read in James chapter 3? Confusion was there. So in verse 7, Uh, What God says is, come, let us go down there and confuse their language. Because of their self-seeking and their envy, they created confusion. And that's what happens even to us. That because of our envy and our self-seeking, confusion and backbiting, all these things that earthly wisdom bring about. All right, let's go over just a couple more chapters for another example quickly. And that is of Lot and Abraham. Now, Lot and Abraham had seen a lot of success. Uh, They had had some great wealth between the two of them. They had huge flocks and herds. And it had gotten to the point to where their their shepherds that were helping had started to fight with one another. So Abraham and Lot decided to have a big split, right? So Abraham, because he's gracious and he's Abraham, he's father of the faith, he's got it together, he tells Lot, you just go and pick any spot you want to pick. You got first dibs. So Lot looks out over the entire land, and boy, he sees the plains of Jordan, and it's beautiful. I mean, if you've got a big herd, and you see all this grass that's out here in front of you, and all these beautiful plains, that's the spot you're going to pick. 
from an earthly wisdom standpoint, this just makes sense to go down here. And what he says in uh, verse in chapter 13, verse 10, and Lot lifted his eyes and saw the plain of Jordan, and it was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord. Man, that sounds pretty good. But the problem was, is down there in the plains, there's a place called Sodom. And it says, And Lot dwelt in the cities of the plains and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful. And we all know how that ended. But what I want to point you back to is, here's, here's Lot, a guy that's hung out with Abraham quite a bit. They're family. He's, he knows the God of Abraham, and yet he did not consult the God of Abraham and because of that, he led his family right down there through his own earthly wisdom to be planted right next to the most evil place that we know of at this time. Right on the outside. And he probably thought, listen, I, I know the Lord. We'll be fine. This place is beautiful. Sure, there's some evil guys down there, but we're going to be camped out on the outside. They won't really affect us. Well, not only did it affect him, it had cost his entire family their lives. Only he and two daughters who didn't have the best moral background, if you read the rest of the story, they were the only ones that survived. So, so as fathers, as leaders of our house, as I read this story, uh, there's a little bit of conviction there. Because what do I do in my own earthly wisdom? What paths do I decide to lead my, pa- my family on without really consulting God? And, and, and do I accidentally plant my tent right next to Sodom? It's something for us to at least ponder and think about. Through earthly wisdom, this is the kind of thing that takes place. So the last example before I run out of time, if you're following along in our daily Bible reading, we just read this past week about a guy named Asa, a king, in Second Chronicles chapter 16. And Asa was the first good king in the kingdom of Judah to really come along. And he did a great job through the first portion of his career. He lasted 41 years as the king of Judah. So in the early portions of his career, he had some great victories. He had a victory over an Ethiopian army that it was said had 1.2 million warriors. And he had exactly 300,000. He was outnumbered four to one. That's some awful odds. But what he did is he cried out to the Lord for help. And God delivered him. He gave him victory over these Ethiopians. So later on in his career... He's got a little more trouble with the guys off to the north, this king in Israel named Basha. And he's down there making some trouble for him. But Asa thinks, you know, listen, I know exactly what to do with this guy. I've got my old buddy, Ben Haydad, up in Syria's phone number. I'll just text him and say, listen, man, I heard you were looking to buy a new Mercedes. You could use a little change in your pocketbook. I've got some gold. I'll send it up your way if you'll just go ahead and start a little skirmish at the northern end and you'll get Basha. You'll pull him right away from me. Really a beautiful plan if you're Asa, right? You've got plenty of money. It's not a big deal to you to throw a little gold up to this guy. You don't even have to go out and battle these guys from Israel. You don't have to battle your own brothers. And you get to stay home. It'll be fine, right? But the issue was, if we pick up in verse 7 of chapter 16 of Second Chronicles, And at that time Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you have relied on the king of Syria and have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Syria has escaped your hand. Were the Ethiopians and the Lubim not a huge 
army and were, and were very many chariots and horsemen. Yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. And in this you have done foolishly. Therefore now you will always have wars. So early in his career, he relied on the Lord. Later in his career, he relied on his own earthly wisdom, and it brought calamity upon him. It brought war into his house. So what's also interesting is what is God really looking for? He's looking to and fro for loyal hearts. That was the issue with Asa. His heart had wandered off. He had known the Lord and had a great relationship. So for us, if you've been a Christian for a while, this is the danger spot. You've been in a place where God's given you great victory early on. But then you're getting a little bit slack. Things are getting a little easy for me. And now, uh, listen, I, I could call on the Lord, but I got this thing figured out. I, I've got a really great plan. And the reality is if I call on him, he might mess up my plan. So I want to just go forward with my plan. He'll surely be good with it. This is a great idea. And then we, we bring around earthly wisdom. And then we bring in problems into our house, right? So these are the dangers and the pitfalls of earthly wisdom for people that don't believe, for people that are on the fence, and for folks that have had loyal hearts that have then stepped away. All these spots are danger spots for us. And as we finish this out, let me just ask you a, a question for you to answer rhetorically. Think about the professions that are on this earth that are the most knowledgeable. Just think about that for a second. What professions, if I asked you, what's the most knowledgeable profession you can come up with right now, what would it be? I came up with three. Doctors, lawyers, and financial advisors. It might all be the three sleaziest at times, too, but definitely the three that are the most schooled. Do you know that if you typed in the Google machine the three professions that have the highest suicide rate, what three will pop up? Doctors, number one, by a landslide. Lawyers and financial advisors. Do you see that this pursuit for earthly wisdom also brings about great sorrow? So it's just something to consider as we look at earthly wisdom. Boy, I tell you, it's nothing but positive right now, right? Okay, let's instead, let's flip the script a little bit. Let's look at heavenly wisdom, godly wisdom which we know from our studies in Proverbs that the definition of wisdom from a biblical standpoint is the fear of the Lord it is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And going back to James chapter 3, let's finish out those last couple verses with verse, or actually the last verse we're going to look at in this section, verse 17. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. So this is godly wisdom as opposed to the earthly wisdom we just spent time looking at. But what are some ways, this all sounds good, but what are some ways that we can find or pursue godly wisdom? So I put up here on the screen for you three different ways that we can go about seeking godly wisdom. First of all, listening to the Holy Spirit. If you turn to the left a little bit to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 16, we're going to look at. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 starts out like this. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, 
that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of Christ, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So there we see that listening for the Holy Spirit allows him to instruct us and, and instruct our lives. Now this idea of listening to the Holy Spirit, if you're talking to someone that is a natural man, they're going to think that's crazy business. Like, what are you doing sitting around listening for God to speak to you? Like, that doesn't even make sense. But for us, it involves, it, it's really a lifeline for us to sit and listen. And the important thing to listening is that it means I'm not talking. All right? Which is difficult for some of us. It's difficult for me at times. The next piece that goes hand in hand with that, though, too, is meditating on the Word of God. As we're listening for the Spirit to speak, we then bring that together as we meditate on the Word. In 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, let's flip there and see what Paul has to say with his last letter of instruction for Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, he says to him, And that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through Christ, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine and reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is the benefit to meditating on the Word of God, that you can go out and be thoroughly equipped for every work that He's put out there in front of you. And you can also be wise in salvation. And so the question I put up there is a question I ask myself, how often do I consult the Word uh, in big decisions that I have? I can tell you not nearly often enough, sometimes not at all. And so that's a point of conviction, at least for me, is do we meditate, do I meditate on the Word when I'm trying to decide which direction to go with things? Now lastly, as we look at things that we can, can do for godly wisdom, we've got more advice from the book of James as we go to James chapter 1. As we make our way that direction, I was thinking about this earlier today, and you can just imagine the early church, you know, having one of these big church conferences where everybody comes together, and here's the early church, they're getting a, they, they've got this conference where they've all been invited, there's all these church plans from Paul, and they've invited to come, been invited to come back to Jerusalem and hear the guest speaker, none other than James, right? Half-brother of Jesus. Man, I'd be excited to go listen to James talk. This is so exciting. We've got a ticket. We're getting ready to go to the Bible conference. Listen to James, and his keynote is going to be on godly wisdom. Wow, I cannot wait to hear what James has got to say about godly wisdom. This is a half-brother of Jesus, man. This is exciting. This is great. This is James. Yeah, sure, they got different dads, he and Jesus, but we all got our issues, right? You know, it's still half-brother. That's pretty good. So we're excited, we're there, we're sitting in the conference, I got my pen, I'm ready to write down every word that he's going to say. There he is, he's up on the stage, old camel knees, I'm not going to call him camel knees to his face, he doesn't like that when you call him that. But there he is, he's up there, I'm ready. Okay, James, he's getting ready to tell us, 
And he says, in order to receive godly wisdom, you should ask for it. What? Ask for it? That's his great advice? To, to receive wisdom, I have to ask? I rode a camel for three days from Antioch to get to this Bible conference. I paid $199 admission into this big conference. And I know the church in Jerusalem is needing some money, but this is crazy. Ask for it? And that's what he says. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. That's it. That's all the harder it has to be. And yet, I don't ask. And why don't I ask? Well, why am I hesitant? Maybe it's because I don't want the answer. (laughs) Maybe it's because I like my answer. That's usually what it is. I like my answer a lot, and I'm afraid if I ask, he might change my answer. But instead, this this is where we're at. Why don't we ask? And we will receive. It's just that simple. So I like this quote to end with tonight. I'm not even sure who who, uh, put it out there, uh, but it's pretty good. So I'll give whoever it is, anonymous. Whoever's anonymous, we'll give them credit. If you lack knowledge, go to school. But if you lack wisdom, get on your knees. And that's the spot we're at, right? So as we look at these these two things, godly wisdom and heavenly wisdom, don't misunderstand. This, This shouldn't pit us against the world. This shouldn't be the church against the world because there's just as much earthly wisdom that I have going on in my own life as anybody else out there, I'm sure. But what it is, is it does draw a line in the sand for us and draws a line in our hearts for us to think about these things. Where am I really pursuing wisdom? Am I pursuing it in the things that are around me? In my vacation schedule? In my work? How can I be promoted? How much money can I make? All these different things. Or am I looking for knowledge right here? Am I pursuing wisdom on my knees? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the chance to open your word. Thank you, Lord, for the book of Ecclesiastes. Thank you, Father, for the life of Solomon, who we can read and we can study who did have great wisdom, but Lord, uh, he spent an awful lot of time looking for wisdom under heaven and not nearly enough time at looking for wisdom in heaven. So Father, uh, that's my prayer for myself tonight as I examine my own life and I look at how much uh, I pursue wisdom of this earth and not the wisdom of heaven. Father, forgive us where we fall short, but Lord, we look expectantly and excitedly at where we can gain just by asking. And Father, we do ask for that tonight. We ask for wisdom. We pray you would pour it out upon us as a church, as leaders of our household, Lord, as fathers, as mothers who have children to raise. Father, help us as we try to instill wisdom in ourselves that we can hopefully pass down to our children. So we lift all this up to you in the name of Jesus this evening. Amen.